Hey, good morning, RCC. Good to see you guys. Hope you had a great week. I want to welcome everybody at all of our churches. Uh, by the way, if we haven't had a chance to meet, I am Matt. And uh, my family and I had a great week. They came down here with me, and so we spent the week with, um, I don't know, several thousand of our closest friends at PCB. There's just a few people over there. And uh, on behalf of all the vacationers, I would like to say to whoever is out there praying for rain, stop it. Just stop it. You're messing everything up for us people, all right? No, it, was, it, was, it really was a great week. And I'm excited to be back today because uh, we're wrapping up this series, my last 365, as I told you last week. I just wanted to share a couple of truths with you that I have been reminded of and in many ways over the last year. They have guided, directed me. Uh, they've been anchors for me as I've navigated through some of the things that I have faced. And I think for you, hopefully for you, they're going to serve the same purpose. They're going to be some things that you could grab hold of that you can remember. And for some of you, you're in a situation right now where these are going to guide you, direct you, and inspire you in figuring out what your next step is. And I want to introduce this second truth today with this question. Have you ever tried to bargain with God? Now, you can be honest. You don't have to answer this out loud, but you can be honest because the answer for almost all of us is yes, yes, you have. So have I. We've all been in situations where we tried to bargain with God. And it's interesting because if you're not someone who believes in God, um, you might be the exception to the rule, but most of my atheist friends even admit to me that in some of their most desperate moments or difficult moments, they have found themselves trying to bargain with God. If there is a God, it was kind of like, you know, whoever's up there, if you're up there, I'd like to make a deal so we can get this moving, you know? All, all of us have been there and we've all felt that. Uh, all you have to do is think back to your teenage years. All of us bargained with God when we were teenagers, didn't we? Do you remember when you were on your way home and you knew you were going to be late? The conversations you have with God of, oh God, if you'll just let mom or dad fall asleep and not know when I walk in. You remember these? You promised a lot of things to God. You'd show up to Sunday night and Wednesday night church. You'd actually pay attention. You'd quit playing tic-tac-toe in the back of the hymnals. Some of you remember hymnals, don't you? I mean, you, you made a lot of deals with God. You remember when you got your pulled, uh, pulled over for your first speeding ticket? which may have been because you were late getting home as a teenager, but they may have been the same story. But you remember what that was like, don't you? It's like, oh, if I just get a warning, God, I promise, I promise, you know. All of us have been there, and then we get to be adults. And quite honestly, the bargaining with God doesn't stop. And sometimes it's still along more selfish things, but oftentimes when we're adults, it becomes far more serious. And we begin praying and saying, okay, God, if, if you would just heal them, you know, if you just heal them or heal me, whoever it may be, if you would just bring healing, then, you know, I promise. Or if you just save my marriage, if you just help me break free of this addiction, if you just help me figure this thing out, if you just help my kids, you know, get back on track and experience a good life. God, if you would just, and we begin to think about what is it that we have that God would want. We try to figure out what would move God, what would motivate God to actually do what we want him to do. And we find ourselves, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but we find ourselves bargaining with God. All of us have done this. We have all tried to leverage God and to leverage God's power for our own benefit. Now, that is not new to the human race by any stretch of the imagination. People have always done this. Matter of fact, there's a very famous man in the first century that you have heard of. I don't care if you, it's your first time in church. You've heard of this guy. There's a famous man in the first century who did this very thing. He was actually at one point in Jesus' inner circle of followers. He was one of the 12. But he looked at Jesus as a way to get what he wanted. 
And so in all of his conversations, his angle was always, in all of his decisions, his angle was always, okay, well, if I do this, then I think I can get Jesus to do this. And if he does this, it's going to benefit me in this way. And when he couldn't get Jesus to do what he wanted to do, he got so frustrated that he quit. He bailed. He just walked away. Well, actually, he did something a lot worse than walk away. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I think we can all relate. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you were so frustrated because God wouldn't do what you thought he should do, what you want him to do, what you prayed for him to do, what you were certain was the best thing for him to do? Have you ever been so frustrated with God that you just checked out, just walked away? I don't necessarily mean physically, although you may have left church for a period of time in your life. But have you ever just checked out spiritually? Checked out mentally, emotionally, and said, okay, I'll go through the motions because I, you know, I got to keep showing up at church, but I'm, I'm just not all in anymore. I'm not that engaged anymore because I don't understand why God isn't doing what I want him to do. I bet we've all felt that frustration at some point. This guy would certainly understand what we were all feeling. His name was Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. Judas was a pretender who ended up being a traitor. Judas was a guy who saw Jesus as a means to an end. He looked at Jesus as a way to get his way. That's how Judas viewed his entire relationship with Jesus. But before we're, we're too harsh on Judas, I'm telling you, and I don't mean to offend you, so hear me out on this. I think there's a little bit of Judas in all of us, including me. There's a little bit of Judas in all of us because there's a little something in all of us that tends to look at our relationship with God as a way to benefit ourselves. And if it's not benefiting us in a way we want it to benefit us, it becomes a little frustrating. There's a little something in all of us that begins to wonder, is this going to be worth it? How's this going to pay off for me? And we are not the first people to struggle with that. Jesus' earliest followers, when they first began following Jesus there in the first century, they all thought the same way. This is just part of following Jesus on the front end. We're all wondering, well, what's going to be the benefit? It certainly was for those early followers. As a matter of fact, one day Jesus is having a conversation with a guy, and he asks the guy, the guy basically says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life, to have a relationship with you? And Jesus makes a demand of him that would require such great sacrifice that the guy just walks away, gives up. And when he's done, when the guy walks away, the disciples who are there with Jesus, they've watched the whole thing happen. <laughs> and Peter speaks up. This is what I love about Peter. Peter says the things all of us think, but we're too scared to say in church. Peter would say it all. And so Peter speaks up because he's watched this and they're all thinking the exact same thing. And so Peter looks at Jesus and he says, okay, well, he walked away and wouldn't do it, but we've left everything to follow you. And then Peter asks a question he probably shouldn't have asked out loud, but we've all thought it. He said, what then will there be for us? Okay, Jesus, we've sacrificed, we've given, we've done our part. So how's it going to benefit us now? What's there going to be for us? Jesus, we want to know what the payoff is going to be because there's got to be a payoff. We've all been that way, haven't we? We've all wondered that. We've all asked this question. What's there going to be for us? Judas, the difference is Judas was a guy who asked this question every day. It's what apparently drove his motives and drove his behaviors and drove his decisions. And the reason Judas was so caught up in this is because Judas had very high Jewish expectations of Jesus. Now, let me see if I can explain this. Not just Judas, but 
most of those early followers of Jesus, they were certain. They were certain that God was going to one day send the Messiah, which they believed would be God coming to earth in human flesh, that God was going to show up on earth in human flesh as a human being. And when he showed up, he was going to establish his kingdom. And when he established his kingdom, God was going to restore the whole world to the way it was originally intended to be. And he was going to restore the nation of Israel to the glory that they were certain he intended for them to have. And that simply meant this, that when God showed up on earth and he made everything right, there'd be no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more death, which also meant that the Jewish people then would have the position that they had long wanted in the world. This was how they viewed it. And Judas was certain that when Jesus showed up, he was that man, he was the Messiah, and that he was going to do all that. Now, the Jewish people, they were right about everything God had promised he was going to do. They were just wrong about the timing. They were right about, yeah, it's going to happen, but they thought it was going to happen in the first century. And over time, as they were following Jesus, expecting him to do all of this, why would they follow him? Well, of course, the closer you are to the guy who has all the power, the better off it's going to be for you. So they had some ulterior motives for being invested in Jesus. And the longer they went, the more frustrated they became, especially Judas. Because Jesus didn't seem to have the passion to overthrow the Romans, the hatred for the Romans that the Jewish people had. Jesus seemed to be completely disinterested in setting up a kingdom on earth. He kept saying, my kingdom, it's not of this world. So they were as confused as they could be. And finally, Judas just has his fill. He's waited and he's waited and he's sacrificed and he's sacrificed. And he's followed and he's followed. And Jesus will not do what Judas is certain he should be doing. And the breaking point, the final straw, if you will, was actually an act of generosity that Judas saw. When he finally decided, that's it. Jesus is never going to do what I want him to do. I'm going to have to force his hand. I'm going to have to take things into my own hands. Here's how it all unfolded. Matthew, who was one of those closest followers of Jesus, he was there and he records this entire encounter for us. Here's what he wrote. He says, while Jesus was in Bethany, Bethany was a town, we talked about this last week. If you were here, Bethany was a town of, you know, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, and if you're wondering who is that, my answer is I have no idea. Nobody really knows who this guy is, but clearly the readers of Matthew's account knew who he was because Matthew didn't feel the need to describe who he was. So he's in the home of this man who we suppose Jesus had probably healed at some point of leprosy. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, Matthew tells us that a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining, at the table. And if you're thinking to yourself, that's just odd, you're right, that is odd. It's, odd. it's very odd. Everybody who was in the room that day thought it was odd. Now, John, who was also one of Jesus' closest followers, was in the room that day. And John, in his account of what happened, he tells us a couple extra little bits of information. One of the things that he tells us is that this jar of perfume was worth a year's worth of wages. So I want you to imagine you're there, okay? Imagine what emotions you would be feeling. Imagine what you would be thinking. Imagine that I'm up here and I have something worth $50,000. Let's just say that's a year's, average year's worth of wages in the U.S. And you watch me just squander it, just pour it out. Let's not even say $50,000. let us say it was worth $25,000, $5,000. Shoot, let's say it's worth $1,000. If you saw me just blow $1,000... This is like taking a big pile of cash and lighting a match to it. What emotion would you have? Well, you'd probably be like me. You'd think, that is such a waste. 
Some of you'd be furious. He could have done something better with that. Why would he waste that much? Well, that's the emotion that all the disciples are feeling. Matthew tells us that when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, I always love it when people do this, and we've all been guilty, so I'm not throwing stones, but I love it when people do this. When they see somebody else do something with their money and, you know, we all go, oh, I can't believe you would spend your money on that. Don't you know you could have helped? I always want to look at them and say, well, when's the last time you helped so-and-so, you know, or that group of people? And it's usually crickets at that point. It's like, well, no, I don't have enough money. But they, you know, it's like, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. We, we all t tend to do this. And the disciples did this that day. They see this woman pour this, you know, year's worth of wages of perfume out on Jesus all at once. And they begin to think of all the other things she could have done that to them would have been way more worthwhile use of the money. Now, what Matthew doesn't tell us that, again, John in his account tells us is this. The guy behind all of this passion was Judas. Judas is the one who stirred all the disciples up to be mad about this supposed waste. And the reason that John tells us Judas stirred everybody up, the reason John tells us that this was the final breaking point for Judas is because Judas basically was the treasurer for Jesus and his group. He used to manage the money. People would give money, donate money to Jesus from time to time to help fund what he was doing so they could travel around and continue to do what he did. And Judas would handle the money. And John gives us this little tidbit, and I assume he didn't learn this till after the fact. I don't know. But John tells us that Judas used to steal some of the money that was given to support Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. How bold do you have to be to steal directly from Jesus? I mean, that tells you something right there about Judas, doesn't it? Like, all right, you're at a different level, buddy. That's pretty bold. Anyway, it's totally irrelevant to the story. Back to the story, all right? Judas has got the whole group worked up. And... Matthew tells us that aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you, but you will not always have me. At which point I think all the disciples paused and went, What? What do you mean we're not always going to have you with us? You're the Messiah. You're here to set up your kingdom. This is what they were assuming. Of course, you, you got to be with us. Jesus goes on and says, when she poured this perfume on my body, she, she did it to prepare me for burial. Burial? No, 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 that, that, that can't happen. That means you're going to die. And see, Jesus, messiahs don't die. So you can't die. We don't want you to die. Well, really, we don't want you to die because we've hitched our entire futures to you. I mean, we care about you, but... We really care about us. We've pushed all our chips into the center of the table on you. We bet everything on you, Jesus. And if you turn out not to be the Messiah, if you turn out to die, what's that going to mean for us? Where's that going to leave us? And so they're all scratching their heads. And they're all beginning to think, maybe we've been wrong about him all along. And at this point, Jesus makes a statement, I'm telling you. If you've always wondered whether you could trust the New Testament, whether you should take it seriously, you should lean in and pay attention to this. This is extraordinary. Here's what Jesus looks at them and says next. He says, truly I tell you, wherever this gospel, wherever this story of what this woman has done is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. 
In other words, hey guys, you hadn't figured it all out yet, but eventually I am going to die, and then I'm going to walk out of the tomb under my own power, and then that story is going to be told everywhere. And along with that story, people are going to be telling the story of what this woman did as a way to prepare me for my burial. And the disciples are looking at each other going, what is he talking about? It's going to be, stories going to be told through the whole world. There are like 15 of us in this room. It's never going to get around the world. But here we are, 2,000 years later, we're talking about this story. It's amazing. Jesus predicted we would be talking about this now. But Judas was not amazed. For Judas, this was, again, the final straw. For Judas, this is the moment he decided, I have bet on the wrong horse. He is not going to do what I want him to do. And I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And so Matthew tells us that one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest, the religious leaders who ran everything in Jerusalem. And he asked him, what are you willing to give me if I hand him, deliver him over to you? And so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. 30 pieces of silver is all it took for Jesus to turn his back on a relationship with God in human flesh. Now, I want to cut Judas a little slack. It could be that he was just done with Jesus and he had lost all faith in who he was. Or it could be that Judas had decided, you know what, Jesus, you're not going to do what I want you to do on your own, so I'm going to force your hand. I'm going to get you arrested. And there's no way you'll allow yourself to be killed. There's no way you'll allow the Romans to put you on a cross. I'm going to put you in a position where you have to show who you are. But either way, Judas was done doing things Jesus' way. The problem was, these religious leaders couldn't arrest Jesus when all the crowds were around because they loved him and they were afraid if we arrest Jesus, there's going to be a huge uproar. There'll be a rebellion. So we got to find the right time. we got to find the right opportunity. And Judas now is the inside man, if you will, that's going to give them that information. And so a few days pass. And on the Passover, on a Thursday evening, Jesus sits down in an upper room with his 12 disciples. They're sitting around a table and they're enjoying the Passover meal. And at some point in the middle of that meal, somebody brings up the fact, hey, you know what? After we're done eating, we all should go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this was a place they went a lot of times. And Judas immediately knew this is the opportunity. In the Garden of Gethsemane at night, nobody is around. It's isolated. This will be so easy. His problem is, how do I get out of the room without raising any red flags? How do I sneak out of this Passover meal and people not wonder, not realize what I've done? As he's sitting there trying to figure it out. Jesus interrupts the conversation as he, and he says something that must have sent a chill up Judah's spine. He says to these 12, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples are stunned. And they begin looking at each other going, it's not going to be me, it's not going to be you, it's not going to be, no, 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 we would never do this. You know, Peter's like, oh, no, 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 I'll go to death with you, Jesus, I'm not going to betray you. They're just stunned, they're shocked, they're trying to figure out what he means by this. Meanwhile, Judas is over there thinking, oh man, how did I ever think I could pull this over on Jesus? He knows. 
I'm done. And as there's all this chaos in the room, Jesus leans over to Judas and he whispers in his ear, what you're about to do, just do it quickly. In other words, Judas, I know, I know it's you. I know what the plan is. I know what's about to happen, but I'm not going to stop you. I value your freedom to choose way too much to do that. But whatever you're going to do, just go do it. And Judas slips out of the room to go tell the religious leaders where they can arrest Jesus. Meanwhile, Jesus looks back at his 12 guys who are still trying to figure out what all this means. And he makes the strangest statement to them. Now, clearly, he knows what's about to happen. Clearly, he knows his death is imminent. Clearly, he knows a cross is waiting for him in the next 24 hours. But he looks at them. And after Judas was gone, Jesus said this, Now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. What are you talking about, Jesus? I mean, okay, God was glorified in the big moments. God was glorified when you had the big crowds. God was glorified when you healed people. God was glorified just a week or so before when you called Lazarus out of his tomb and brought a dead man back to life. I mean, I could see all of that. But in the loss of the cross, no, 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 nobody's winning here. Nobody's glorified. Jesus says, no, no, you don't get it. And those guys in that room that day didn't understand it. But he knew eventually they would begin to see. So we want them to know what's about to happen to me. Even in the loss of the cross, I win. God wins. And we know the other side of the story. We know the tomb couldn't hold him. We know he comes back to life. We know he died and rose again to pay the penalty for all of our sins. We understand that. But in the room that day, they couldn't see the future. And they just didn't know the outcome. And it wasn't going to make a lot of sense. But the thing Jesus wanted them to know, and maybe the thing you need to know, is that no matter what happens in your life, God's will cannot be blocked. His purposes will not be stopped. Now, he's going to give you the freedom to choose, just like he gave Judas the freedom to choose. He's going to give the people around you the freedom to choose. But in spite of our choices, his will always ultimately prevails. So, here's why I wanted to share this story with you. Because again, I think there's a little bit of Judas in all of us. And what I mean by that is simply this. I think there's something in all of us that finds ourselves in situations where we want to bargain with God, where we know the outcome we want in our lives. We know the outcome we want with a relationship, with a marriage, with our kids, with our money, with our careers. We know the outcome. And so we begin to negotiate. We begin to bargain. And here's what I want you to be aware of. If God does not do what you want him to do, when you want him to do it, you will be tempted just like I'm tempted, just like Judas was tempted. You will be tempted to try to take matters into your own hands. You will be tempted to try to manage outcomes and circumstances on your own. You'll be tempted to try to force God to act on your behalf. You'll be tempted to try to take responsibility 
for what's going to happen to you in the future and how everything's going to turn out. And you can do that because, again, God's going to honor your freedom. The problem is when you take full responsibility for the outcome, then all the pressure, all the weight is on your shoulders. And you have just put yourself in a seat, in a place that you can't handle and neither can I. All you and I have control of are the choices that we make right now. We have zero control over the outcome of those choices. We can't control the future. And you know this. doesn't mean we don't try, but you know this. You know this logically. But emotionally, it's so hard to remember that we actually have no control over the future. And we have to decide, will I trust my future to God? Or will I try to control it and manipulate it on my own? One way to try to control and manipulate, you know this, you've done it. It robs you of peace. It robs you of joy. It robs you of confidence. And it robs you of experiencing the best that God has for you. The other way, the other way lets you experience all of that. This year has certainly reminded me of that, and I bet most, if not all of you, have found yourselves in some type of circumstance or situation where you have had to make a decision. Am I going to trust or am I going to control? And the thing I want you to remember is simply this. When we obey, when we obey, God takes full responsibility for the outcome of the journey. This is the promise that he makes to us. That when you choose to trust, when you choose to obey, when you decide, I'm going to stop bargaining. I'm going to stop trying to negotiate. I'm going to stop trying to manipulate. I'm going to stop trying to orchestrate all these outcomes. When you just do the thing right now that God's asking you to do, with no promise or no guarantee that it'll turn out the way you want it to, when you trust like that, God says, okay, you've done what you can do. Now I'm going to do what only I can do. You've done what you can do, so now I am going to take full responsibility for the outcome of your journey. You don't have to worry about that anymore. So, for those of you who maybe are at a point in your life, maybe you're facing a circumstance or situation where you've been bargaining, you've been negotiating, you've been trying to control you're in a situation where you just want to control getting that relationship or keeping that relationship or saving that marriage or changing the behavior of your kids or getting that promotion at work or getting that deal or breaking free of that thing, whatever that thing is for you that you've been tempted to try to control and manipulate and get everybody to do what you want them to do so things will turn out the way you think they ought to turn out. You can do that. But if you do, you're now responsible for controlling a future that you simply cannot control. And you will miss out on the best that God has for you. Or you can trust. You can do what you can do today. You can obey with no guarantees that everything's going to work out. And he'll take full responsibility for the outcome of your journey. One way feels 
a lot more confident on the front end. If I feel like I'm in control and I'm calling all the shots and I'm managing things and I'm bargaining and I'm negotiating, boy, I feel good in the moment. I feel like I'm in control. I feel like, you know, I can do something. The problem is on the other side, when things don't work out like we had planned, we're completely out of control and we have to acknowledge it. Or I can trust now, which causes me to feel a little out of control. I can trust now, which means, God, I'm just going to do the next right thing. And I don't know if it's going to work or not, but you say to do this, I'm going to do it. I feel more out of control on this side. But on the other side, I come to discover that God was in control the entire time. I had nothing to worry about. So if you find yourself in that situation, I just want to encourage you to choose wisely. To have enough trust, to have enough faith, to have enough confidence in your Heavenly Father that you'll obey and you'll leave the outcome in his hands because he promises he will take full responsibility when you do. Let me pray for us. Father, would you give us, um, give us the courage to trust you? It's so hard, especially for those of us who are facing circumstances right now that we're just, we're just certain we know what's best. <laughs> We're certain we know how to get everybody else to agree with us and get there and do the things they need to do so we can get the outcome we want. But in doing that, God, we so often miss the best, burn relationships, damage our lives. So would you help us to have enough confidence in you? Just obey and trust you with the outcome of our journeys. Just obey and trust you to do what only you can do. We'll do our part today. We'll do the next right thing. And we'll get up tomorrow and do the same thing again. And we'll look for you and your activity. We'll look for you at work. And we'll trust that you will show up when we need you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here. Y'all have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. You're dismissed.